Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special history episode of the podcast is my co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. Hello, Ward. Great to see you again, as always. Great to see you here on the old Microsoft Teams. Joining us for this special history episode is the a member of the staff emeritus, our good friend Paul Stilwell. Paul was the original editor-in-chief of Naval History Magazine. What year was that, Paul? What, what year do we crank this puppy up? There was a, a trial issue in 1987, and it was so well received that we went into quarterly publication in 1988. And then I had uh, the job as editor-in-chief until 1993 when it went to bi-monthly. And so uh, Fred Schultz took over at that point. And then you took over the oral history program. So you've been associated well, with the uh, Naval Institute for, for decades. So the name of the article in the September issue of Naval History Magazine, which we're celebrating the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, the name of the article is A Fitting Place to End a War, and it's about the USS Missouri. So, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So, Paul, um, you were obviously the go-to guy to write this article, having written the book, um, The Battleship Missouri and Illustrated History. So when we realized we wanted to do something in this issue to commemorate the surrender ceremony on the deck of the Missouri, we obviously got in touch with you. This is not so much an article, though I think you'll agree, about the surrender, though that's a big part of the article. It's the story of the ship. The ship itself is the star of the article. So if you want to just talk us through the life of that ship, it had a short career, obviously, but it certainly had its date with destiny at the end of the war. Well, her story began in... Uh... January of uh, 1940, and uh, the keel was laid in the New York Navy Yard, more often known as the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So that was a a cold day, and construction started there. Uh, It's a matter of putting together pieces of a giant jigsaw puzzle, and you have to get the pieces coming in from here, there, and everywhere in the right sequence and have to remember that in the wartime economy there were scarce materials and what have you and her construction was actually speeded up she was not scheduled to be finished quite so soon but in uh, january 1944 it came time for christening the ship and typically the sponsor would be a relative of the governor and in this case The governor was a Republican, and the president in the White House was Franklin D. Roosevelt. So he preferred that the sponsorship should go to a Democrat. And there was a a rising senator, Harry S. Truman, from the state of Missouri. And he had gotten national prominence through uh, a war investigation of trying to root out waste, fraud, and abuse. So his 19-year-old daughter, Margaret, was selected. She was then a college student in Washington. She had two good girlfriends, and so they joined her uh, in New York City the night before, and they went out partying, they saw a musical, and were so excited that they couldn't get to sleep. So they showed up the next morning at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, still a little bleary-eyed, 
And the, <laughs> the uh, admiral went on, made a speech, kept talking and talking for a while. And the upshot was that uh, Senator Truman, as he was then, uh, got really cut short. And so he had to speak quickly and make his words count. He said, we look forward to the day when the Missouri will steam into Tokyo Bay with her guns blazing. And that prediction came virtually true. His daughter, Margaret, smashed the bottle of champagne against the, the bow of the Missouri. She went sliding down into New York's East River. And as a postscript, I might add, 52 years after that, Margaret, by then Margaret Daniel, was the sponsor for the USS Harry Truman, an aircraft carrier being built in Newport News, Virginia. And so I think that belongs in the book of Guinness World Records for the longest time between serving as sponsor of major warships, 52 years. <laughs> so the ship went on to completion and they started getting uh, recruits coming in from various parts, boot camps, training camps, to be the first crew of the ship. And there was a, a young fireman uh, from California, and he was supposed to be on a, a sound-powered phone line and relay messages down in the engine room. And so he was reporting to a, a more senior petty officer, and the conversation went on, and, and the petty officer said, well, what are they saying? He said, I don't know. They're talking in a foreign language. The problem was that this man was from California, and most of the new crew were from New England, New York, New Jersey. They were speaking in accents that were foreign to him. <laughs> so the, the day came to commissioned the ship, which was uh, in the spring of 1944, uh, again at the Navy Yard, and Senator Harry Truman was there, and so was uh, the senior senator from Missouri, Bennett Champ Clark, and he had been present back 30, 40 years ago when the previous battleship Missouri was launched. And uh, so he was the principal speaker. Also speaking was James Forrestal, the Secretary of the Navy. So they talked about the, the role that this ship would have. She got underway, test fired her guns, and uh, then did more training going south through the Panama Canal. And until that time, she had a very distinctive camouflage pattern. It was black and white and gray, and the uh, design of it was to fool U-boats on just what direction she was heading. Well, when she got into the Pacific through the Panama Canal, the U-boats were no longer an issue, so now the main threat would come from aircraft, Japanese aircraft. So she went through a paint job at a shipyard in San Francisco and was turned into a dark gray and blue. And uh, the idea was that it would make her harder to see from the air. The decks were painted. They were 
beautiful teak wood decks, but they were painted gray. So the idea was that they would blend in with the ocean. They proceeded on up to San Francisco, got their orders, went out to Hawaii, practicing more drills, what have you. Finally got to the uh, war zone, uh, reported into Ulithi Atoll in the Caroline Islands uh, in early 1945. And in the Navy, we've had this old saying, hurry up and wait. You rush to get into something, and then when you get there, it's not ready to happen. So the men cooled their heels for a while. Then they got into uh, combat. And by late in the war, the fast battleships, such as the Missouri and her sisters, Wisconsin and New Jersey and Iowa, really didn't have a role with their big guns. They were uh, anti-aircraft platforms. They had dozens of guns as if a, a forest of uh, seeds for gun mounts had been planted on those decks. They practiced a lot, went out on carrier operations, came time for the Okinawa campaign, and she and her sisters joined in a bombardment of the island of Okinawa. This was part of a, the Central Pacific Offensive, which was going island to island as stepping stones to go uh, toward Japan. And Okinawa was essentially the last stepping stone because she was only about three or 400 miles from the Japanese home islands. By this time, the Japanese were desperate. They had resorted to kamikaze tactics. Well, the Missouri and her sisters did the shore bombardment and actually it was part of a deception feint the idea being to bombard the coast of the island, not where the landings were expected, but to lead the Japanese to believe that's where they would be and position more troops there. The D-Day for the amphibious assault was the 1st of April, which happened to be Easter Sunday. And uh, the Missouri took part in uh, the carrier operations, supporting the landings. And then she uh, had the misfortune to get hit by one of those kamikaze planes. And I talked to some men who were on board the ship, and they said it, it obviously came very close. And when they saw on the final approach, the Japanese pilot who was intent on committing suicide was riding the plane sort of the way a jockey would ride a horse, very leaning forward and into it. And his aim was okay, but not great. He wound up coming in on the starboard side, the right side, near the stern of the ship and hit the Missouri with the propeller hub at the nose of the plane and that spun the plane so that its right wing twirled around and smashed into the, the side of the Missouri and made a dent that's still there. 
Wow. And I, I, I have seen that dent. The Fortunately, the, the pilot's bomb did not go off, so the damage was minimal. As it happened, the collision with the ship cut the pilot in half, and the top of his body landed on board the ship amidst flames from the fuel tanks that were on fire. And the fire was quickly put out and men of the New Jersey, I mean, of the Missouri were scrambling to uh, pick up aluminum pieces of the plane that were war souvenirs in a sense. And an opportunity that the, the ground soldiers and the Marines got capturing enemy weapons. Well, they had captured part of an enemy weapon. The bottom half of the pilot and the bottom half of the plane fell into the sea, but they had half of the uh, pilot's body. So the, the ship's, ship's chaplain was Commander Roland Falk, and he had been going up to the bridge on the day that this happened, and he was surprised to see that the men on the bridge were scrambling to get to the port side. They had seen the plane coming. Uh, he quickly realized what the problem was and got out of harm's way, though it happened that the collision was hundreds of feet away. But he presided over the military burial of the dead Japanese pilot. And there were Marines with a firing squad, uh, not to shoot the pilot, but Typically, uh, there are shots fired in honor at a funeral. And I think uh, one of the Marines said he would not fire his because he did not like to take part in this kind of activity. But the chaplain presided over and the corpse was covered with a, a flag. And uh, he said, just remember a dead Jap is no longer the enemy. And so he was rendered proper honors, military honors, as he slid over the side of the Missouri into the sea. And not too long after that, uh, another kamikaze hit. It hit the uh, stern crane and sort of bounced off. But she was the only one of the fast battleships to be hit by a suicide plane during the war. So, hit twice, no less, right? Yes, <laughs> exactly. So the Missouri continued on, and the carrier raids were coming closer and closer to Japan. Uh, on the 7th of April, the super battleship Yamato with 18.1 inch guns was headed for Okinawa, uh, presumably to provide uh, shore bombardment support for Japanese troops on the island, but she never made it. It was a, a suicide run, but sort of a saving face gesture on the part of the Japanese surface Navy. And uh, the old Battleships were closer, but instead of a gun duel, it wound up 
being uh, an aerial onslaught from the American aircraft carriers, just dozens and dozens of planes with bombs and torpedoes, and this giant warship displacing 72,000 tons just took all that punishment, but it was too much for her. And after a while, there was a mushroom cloud, perhaps a precursor to what was to come with the atomic bombs. And so she sank, and there was no surface opposition left for the American battleships, so they stayed with the carriers and just relentlessly winning the, the Okinawa campaign and pounding the, the home islands. The plan was for an invasion of the home island of Kyushu in the fall of 1945. And to that end, uh, the top battleship admiral in the Pacific during the war, Vice Admiral Willis Lee, had been sent back to Casco Bay, Maine to do experimental tests on how to counter the kamikazes. And uh, unfortunately, there were no great breakthroughs. But on the 6th of August, as history well records, the B-29 bomber Enola Gay dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan. And that brought no overt response from the Japanese government. So three days later, uh, another mission went up. The plane was called the Boxcar of B-29 flying out of Tinian in the Marianas. And it happened that I did the oral history interviews with the man who was in charge of the weapon that day, Commander Dick Ashworth, later a vice admiral. And within less than a week after the second atomic bomb, the Japanese put out feelers for a surrender. The uh, emperor recorded a message to the Japanese people. He was treated like a god in Japan. And he told the people via radio broadcast that Unfortunately, it was time to surrender and to cooperate with the process with the invading Americans. So, so many so, of the locals had never heard his voice, right? I mean, it was just shocking for them. As you said, he was a deity. And so when they hear his voice, it sort of humanized him. And it was really shocking to the populace at that time. Well, it, it, it did. And really not that well known to the populace was that the military in Japan had uh, gone to him to get approval to start the war at Pearl Harbor. And now, ironically, they have to go to him to get the approval to convince the Japanese people that it's time to end the war and to cooperate with the visitors. The Americans were still apprehensive because, in fact, there were some young officers, young Turks in the Japanese military who, who didn't want to go along with the surrender, but they were not successful in overturning it. 
And at the very end of August, the Missouri steamed into Sagami Wan, which is adjacent to Tokyo Bay. And the admiral on board the Missouri was Admiral William Bull Halsey, who was the commander of the Third Fleet. And I have seen photos of him when he got the news of the surrender. And he was just exultant and a, a great broad smile. And on the, the last day of hostilities, when the word came through of the surrender, he sent out a, a message to the American aircraft carriers and said, if there are any Japanese planes that still come your way, shoot them down, but do it in a friendly fashion. So, <laughs> Trust but verify. Trust but verify. Friendly shoot down. So none came. And so the, the Missouri steamed peacefully into Tokyo Bay. And uh, this is close to what Truman had prophesied at, at the ship's launching that she would steam into Tokyo Bay with guns blazing, but they didn't need the guns. So Truman, who was a senator at commissioning, is now the president. And I don't know at what point he went from senator to vice president. I guess it was... Uh, 45. He, but but I'm not... What what was it? Was, was there an election at that point? Was he always FDR's vice VP? How did that happen? He was uh, selected at the Democratic National Convention in 1944, and one of his supporters was Robert Hannigan from Missouri, and the vice president for the term, the third term of Roosevelt was Henry Wallace, and he was considered a, a little too liberal, and uh, so Truman was put forth by Hannigan and Roosevelt went along with it. And then they campaigned together in the fall of 1944, even in foul weather. And the idea was to portray that Roosevelt was still healthy and vigorous, which was absolutely not true. He, he was already a dying man at that point from uh, heart trouble. So, the inauguration was on January 20th, 1945. Roosevelt was inaugurated for his fourth term and Truman as the vice president. And Roosevelt then died on April 12th of 1945. And Truman had the presidency thrust upon him, even though he was not that eager. But he had no choice. That's the way it was. Well, and, and you also mentioned that America really didn't even know who he was. You know, I guess it would be like if Dan Quayle suddenly was elevated to the presidency, that kind of a VP who's sort of an afterthought or put in for political calculus reasons and not because he's a very well-known uh, individual. What What fascinates me about that element of this article, just like when you're talking about the commissioning, um, or you're actually talking about the keel laying and then the three years until commissioning. And then after commissioning, there's basically a year of, of workups and training and refitting on both coasts till they finally get to the war. 
you know, and, and so, as you said, the process was sped up, but it still was a lengthy process, although it's super quick compared to if you look at how long it's taken to, to build and field and get ready for fleet ops, for instance, the carrier Ford these days, you know, things take a lot longer, um, probably uh, would uh, chalk that up to the technology, not to mention the funding, you know, vagaries of the day, but uh it's interesting to watch that even in the face of World War II, let's just say life goes on in terms of elections, in terms of political intrigue, in terms of political infighting, as you're saying, FDR didn't want a Republican at the, uh, the christening, um, you know, and, and so they get the, uh, the Truman girl in there instead, you know, these kinds of things. It kind of does my heart good to know that these things we're dealing with these days in terms of chaos and, and and churn on the political front is not a new phenomenon. Certainly not. Well, I, I want to add a sidelight there that uh, after Truman took over as president, his nephew, that is the son of his brother, was an enlisted crew member of the Missouri, uh, John C. Truman, and he kept a, a low profile. He he certainly didn't want to trade on his uncle's prominence and just did his job as a member of the navigation department. I have been to the Truman Library in Independence, Missouri, and they had a file of letters that had come from John Truman. Each one started off, Dear Uncle Harry. And in one of the letters, he said, I still find it hard to believe that you are the president. It's like lightning struck in the family. And that that was probably a sentiment shared across the country that people had a hard time believing after 12 years of FDR as president. Yeah, that's amazing to consider when you think of, you know, give him hell, Harry, and the buck stops here. You assume he was a political giant from the outset, but he really wasn't. Well, give him credit. He was not even a a college graduate. But he was an avid reader, and there were records of dozens and dozens of books he had checked out from the Library of Congress. And he was a man of integrity and courage, which were great assets uh, in the presidency. And so he, he moved into the job. He grew into the job. And it, it wound up being his decision to order the dropping of the atomic bombs. And that's as heavy we a know, decision as any president has ever had to make. Yeah, if not the heaviest, the heaviest ever, you know. Right. And here's this yeah. accidental president having to make that call. Do you think history has um, looked kindly on his decision, Paul? It's mixed. Uh, we've just been through the 75th anniversary of those bombs being dropped. And uh, there are still some critics that said the war would have been won quickly anyway. But it brought a much more rapid conclusion to the hostilities. And uh, I've heard from many of those who were scheduled to be on the invasion force going into Japan, and they were ever more grateful that, that he had made that decision. And then he made another decision uh, as a prerogative of being commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy. There 
was a, a question where would the surrender ceremony be held? And the, the one in Germany had been held in a, a building and there was no TV, it just was a quiet ceremony. And he wanted this to be out in the open so that the Japanese people could see that they were truly vanquished during this war. And there were any number of ships that might have been more deserving of the honor of serving as the surrender site. But he was the president. This was his home state. His daughter had christened the ship. So he made the choice. And then the men of the Missouri began rehearsing what the ceremony would be. And as one might guess, there were not a lot of volunteers on the Japanese side to be part of the surrender party, but the top man was uh, the foreign minister, Shigemitsu, who had lost a leg during an assassination attempt a dozen years earlier. So they were practicing how long it would take him to come up from a destroyer, climb up the steps, go across uh, the deck, and then one more deck climbing up to the what's called the captain's veranda deck, uh, the O1 level, one level above the main deck. And so they, they practiced this meticulously and timed it to see how long it would take. The Missouri went in warily. She still had her guns manned as she approached the surrender site just in case. And the, the aircraft carriers were deliberately kept outside so that they could launch their planes uh, if need be. But uh, the night before the ceremony, Admiral Halsey wrote a letter to his wife. And he said, well, you know, the president's daughter is the sponsor. She christened the ship. But remember that our daughter was the sponsor for the aircraft carrier Kalpins, and that will be the only aircraft carrier in Tokyo Bay for the surrender. So Halsey got his piece in. <laughs> Came the day of the surrender, September 2nd, and the destroyer came alongside the Missouri starboard side, the main battery 16 inch gun turret two was trained out to starboard to make more room on the deck because of all the dignitaries that were there. And this included many senior officers, not only from uh, the United States, but from the allies, including the Soviet Union at that point, because that country had been part of the alliance. So Shigemitsu did his walk. They allowed extra time because of the wooden leg. And he wound up taking twice as long as the sailor who had a swab handle down his pant leg during the rehearsal. But he got up to the deck and there were Two surrender documents laid out, one in English, one in Japanese. And there was a diplomat named Kase, K-A-S-E, who had been educated in the United States, understood English. And he wrote later that when he looked up at the superstructure 
of the Missouri, it was just covered with hundreds and hundreds of sailors. And there was a, a painting on a bulkhead on the superstructure indicating that the Missouri had shot down 11 Japanese planes. So he looked up at that and he was very apprehensive because it had been an unconditional surrender and there was no telling what sort of terms that the Japanese would face after the war. Their country was in a shambles from all the bombing, uh, not just the atomic bombs, but conventional bombs from the B-29s and the airstrikes from the American carriers. So the, the ceremony was supposed to start at nine in the morning. And because of his leg, Shigemitsu didn't get there until shortly after. He was at 9.02. And the great uh, General MacArthur came out of the captain or the Admiral's quarters, Admiral Halsey's. He walked down one ladder to the surrender deck where all these dignitaries were in place. There was a platform set up with photographers and cameramen and reporters to spread the news to the world. It was carried live on radio um, back to the United States. And so MacArthur made a, a speech and to this Japanese diplomat, Kase, it uh, was far more conciliatory than he expected. It was not going to be the imposition of a brutal peace, but rather let's move forward together in a, a post-war world and rebuild. And, and the, Kase said he felt an immense sense of relief. And then General MacArthur sat down watched as Shigemitsu signed the document and at one point his wooden leg bounced off the metal leg of the table and there was little concern that it might collapse because it had spindly legs but the table survived. He asked Kase what time it was so he could fill that in on the official document. It was 0904. Then the, he signed on behalf of the country. There were 11 Japanese as part of the party. The other signer was General Yumizu signing on behalf of the Japanese armed forces. So then the, uh, it was time for the allies to sign. Admiral Chester Nimitz signed on behalf of the United States. MacArthur signed on behalf of the allied powers. So both the army and the Navy had a, a part of this. And then one by one, the Allied representatives came forth, including the Soviet, and they signed, one man signed on the wrong line, so they had to fix that later with an arrow. And for propaganda purposes, uh, when the photos went back to the Soviet Union, the only person shown in the photos was the Soviet signing the document. They had been retouched. And then uh, MacArthur said, these proceedings are closed. And then President Truman spoke to the country on this nationwide radio hookup. And General MacArthur went over to Halsey 
and put his arm around his shoulder and said, start them now. And hundreds of American and allied airplanes flew over the surrender, over the Missouri, just after the surrender. And they were so deafening that you could not hold conversations. And uh, I remember one man, gunner's mate named Walt Yaka, and he said that was a moment of immense relief. He said, such a thrill, the war was over. And there was a, a young teenager turned to his buddy and said, we made it, because he had wondered whether he would ever make it back home again. And the, the planes came in so low that there was some concern they might hit the masts of the ship, but that didn't happen. Yeah, there's an amazing picture on uh, page 27 of that flyover, um, the scale of which maybe has never been equaled in terms of the number of airplanes. I'm just thinking I've participated in fly-ins of 20-something airplanes, and that was a super hairy evolution to try to coordinate. And now I'm just the rough – I mean, these this has got to be near on 100-plus airplanes uh, that are flying over here. Um, so you can imagine these rotary engines. It was probably just a amazing sound, not to mention sight. And as you said, uh, the guy you talked to just gave him chills even decades later to talk about – that event. So it's really high drama. And certainly um, MacArthur had a flair for the dramatic. He knew how to do ceremony and he knew how to strike a tone. And among other things that he was setting the tone for is he would go on to be sort of the viceroy of Japan, you know, from that point forward. He had a, he lived in a hotel in Tokyo, never went back to the United States for another 13 years after that, and basically got that country back on its feet. Uh, some would argue that that was MacArthur's greatest achievement, rebuilding Japan after the war. And in order to avoid domestic upheaval, they allowed the emperor to live rather than being executed as a war criminal. And uh, the partnership worked and got the country rebuilt. And we've seen what an amazing economic power Japan has become since then. <clears throat> I should say that after the surrender, the ship went back to New York for Navy Day, and thousands of people went aboard to visit and just see this famous ship. She was the most famous ship in the world at that point. She made an around-the-world cruise uh, in 1946, and uh, so a lot of people got to see her. She stopped in Turkey, and Turkey even issued postage stamps with the image of the Missouri on them. And I've had the pleasure of talking with a number of veterans. One remembered of that, the conclusion of the ceremony on September 2nd, a visual to go along with the, the loud noises you've mentioned from the airplanes. The day had been overcast, but the clouds parted somewhat, and sunbeams came through the holes in the clouds and made a pattern on the water 
like the, the rays of the sun. And so you could compare it sort of as the American's rising sun uh, from the, go along with the setting of the Japanese sun. And on the 70th anniversary of the surrender, I was privileged to be present as the event was celebrated five years ago. <clears throat> and I met a man named Don Fosberg from California. He had celebrated his 19th birthday on board the Missouri the day of the surrender. And now here he was back again celebrating his 89th birthday uh, on the 70th. And usually at a military funeral, there is a flag presented to the next of kin for dead service person. But in this case, Fosberg was called up, complete surprise to him, and he was presented with a flag that had flown over the Missouri it was in a case so he, he could have that reminder of one of the biggest days of his life and had the benefit that he was able to enjoy it while he was still alive. So that sort of put a bookend uh, to this incredible story of the ship that really took very little part in the war but became a symbol of the winning of the war. And it's perhaps another great symbol that the Missouri is now a museum in Pearl Harbor and she is moored very near what's left of the battleship Arizona, which was a symbol of the beginning of the war on December 7, 1941. So things had come full circle. So the surrender very well documented. Um, you have a photo on page 25. It's an angle I haven't seen very often. Usually you're seeing the photos from the starboard side looking inward across the table towards all of the officers, primarily American naval officers who are lined up there in their wash khakis. It's always interesting to try to figure out who's who because you can imagine the protocol associated with this thing. Because at once it looks sort of informal, as you said, sailors sitting on the turrets and wherever they could gawking at the event. And then this line of, of flag officers that are sort of not at like erect attention, just kind of standing around. And there's looks like to be some French officers and other nations. I see some like what look to be Aussie hats in the crowd and then just sailors standing there. So the comings and goings, the getting on and off the ship, all of that must have been a real nightmare for you know, the, the protocol types and the public affairs types. But it's just an amazing, amazing event with the Japanese principals in their tuxedos and the the officers in their, you know, sort of dress uniforms with those boots up to their knees and that sort of thing. It's just, it's something you just can't imagine today, right? We haven't had this sort of thing in modern times or in, in, you know, in certainly uh, in the last 40 years, regardless of what the conflict is, you know, desert storm one or the invasion of Iraq or whatever. So it's just really, really incredible. It's such a sort of forging of that American effort and the allied effort. Um, this culmination in this, again, it's a, a, a testimony to how 
MacArthur had this flair for the dramatic. And then all the other elements, like you said, Truman wanted Missouri because of his history with that ship, because um, it didn't have to necessarily be Missouri. So Missouri was decommissioned uh, and then recommissioned. I know this because when I was a J.O., uh, my first cruise aboard USS John F. Kennedy in the mid-'80s, Missouri was on deployment with us in the Mediterranean. So that was part of the layman, let's bring back the battleships thing that didn't last that long. Um, so what was that all about? Interestingly, she made a uh, another around-the-world cruise in 1986, 40 years after she had made one, and she stopped in Turkey uh, during that cruise and continued on. And remarkably, five years later, she participated heavily in Operation Desert Storm when the Americans first launched missiles into Baghdad, they came from the Missouri and the Wisconsin. And it's just very hard to conceive that a ship commissioned in 1944 could still be playing an active role in 1991. And you spoke of the uniforms at the surrender ceremony. The Some of the Foreign representatives were indeed in their fancy uniforms, but the Americans were in their wash khakis, their casual working uniforms. So I guess they just viewed it as another day at the at the office, and that's how they were going to end the war. Uh, you mentioned also a camera angle. There was a 40-millimeter gun tub uh, behind MacArthur, and so the Life magazine photographer Carl Midens could get a view of the faces of the Japanese, but not uh, MacArthur. And he had known MacArthur for years. And so he sneaked out of the gun tub, ran around the, the table and took one shot of MacArthur face on. And at that point, he was intercepted by some burly and uh, very strident Missouri Marines, and they carried him back toward the gun tub. And as he passed MacArthur, MacArthur gave him a wink to say, "Yes, good job." Each other good for a job. long time. Yeah. Then the Marines jammed him back into the gun tub. <laughs> <laughs> so the article is called "A Fitting Place to End the War." The author is our good friend Paul Stillwell. It's in the September issue of Naval History Magazine which is hitting the streets when, Eric, in early September or late August? Late August, early September, and it'll be um, out there on the newsstands for September and October. A lot of good other content about the end of the war, including Paul's great piece. So um, take a look. Celebrate the 75th anniversary of that iconic moment. No doubt. In the 20th century. Fantastic. So thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Paul. It's a pleasure to be with old friends. Thank you. So that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.